Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in their house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I shall spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out, leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the sole of your feet. And on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the, fathers, the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And there we are. The end of Malachi. It's been a good series. It's been a different series, uh, I suppose, uh, looking through these 12 minor prophets and only taking one bite uh, each time. Uh, and for one last time then today, we, we do that again and we close the series in Malachi, as we've just read. Uh, and we haven't gone through these 12 minor prophets, by the way, in, in their book order or in their chronological uh, historical order, but, but Malachi does, as it happens, uh, close the minor prophets uh, in both senses. Of the word, and moreover, therefore, Malachi closes uh, the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, if you turn uh, one page, uh, the New Testament starts in in Matthew, right after our text today. 
And so that's where to find the minor prophets next time you feel like a minor prophet's fix. Uh, at the very end of the Old Testament, uh, and Malachi at the very end, uh, which makes what we've just read, the final word of God in Scripture, before the coming of the king. Uh, that's what we were uh, thinking about last week in, in Zechariah, the book one before Malachi. The king is coming, uh, and God promised uh, that uh, through Malachi too, uh, with new detail. Uh, if you gl- glance back, actually, from where we read to chapter 3 and verse 1, if you have your Bibles there, chapter 3 and verse 1, uh, God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Then again in chapter 4 and verse 5 where we just read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. God promised he himself would come to his people and indeed that's what's over that page in Matthew And so the Old Testament famously ends on that promise uh, from God in in Malachi uh, of him coming to save his people. But apart from that promise, it's otherwise quite a scathing word from God against his people uh, through this prophet Malachi. But when you read the whole book later, this one's pretty short, it's only 20 minutes, you'll see that for yourself. And you'll see that by and large this is actually a rebuke from God against his people, this book. And his rebuke comes in a, in a kind of Q&A format and structure, really. God tells his people that they're off track and he, and he sums up their heart problem in, in seven questions that run through the book that, that he reckons they've effectively been asking of him in the way that they've been living their wayward lives. Now, chapter 1 and verse 2, if you want to flick back and catch a couple of these Uh, Briefly, in chapter 1 and verse 2, God reckons they've been questioning his love for them. Uh, Chapter 1 and verse 7, he says they've been uh, denying uh, their dishonour of him. They've they've been dishonouring him, but but they deny that uh, in their questioning. Uh, Chapter 2 and and verse 14, uh, they've questioned why God isn't answering their needs. Chapter 2 and verse 17, they again question how they've done anything wrong against God. In chapter 3, our reading today, come the last three questions in this book that God uh, asks and puts to them, that they've effectively been asking. The three questions that bring it all to a head, I think. Uh, His word uh, draws to a close at the end of the Old Testament age and this is where it kind of lands. Pick it up in chapter 3 and verse 17 that we read. Sorry, verse 7 that we read. Uh, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. And that call is simple. God wants the people to return to him. But as he then goes on to explain, the people are not heeding that call. But you say, God says of them, you say, how shall we return? 
The answer to that question, if you think about it, that question at face value, the answer was covered in the charge that God just laid against them. If they have turned away from his statutes and not kept them, then it will it'd be self-evident, wouldn't it, that, that returning to him would involve a change on that, that they would start keeping his statutes. So it rather instead sounds that their question, how shall we return, isn't to be read at simple face value. It's not voiced as if these people are truly remorseful and, and, and genuinely want to know how to come back to God, but rather as if to say uh, they still believe themselves to be with God, to be right with God and having no need, therefore, to, to return to him, as he says, i.e. they don't agree with God that they've turned away from his decrees and, and so they're questioning his judgment on this. How exactly... Have we not kept your statutes? That's what they're really asking. They see themselves as innocent on this charge. They're rejecting God's rebuke on their lives. To which I think perhaps God uses the next two questions to, to unpack and explain that overarching call. First of all, they're holding back on God, verse 8, as he digs into this a bit deeper for them. They're holding back. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, he says. But you say, how have we robbed you? As if to say, they believe themselves to be honest and fair and generous in all their dealings with God. How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, says God. Tithes refers to the routine giving of a tenth of, of everyone, uh, everything that one receives or produces, giving it back to God routinely. Uh, contributions or, or offerings, for want of a better word, uh, offerings are gifts given to God more freely beyond that. And God says uh, that they're not giving to him in either of those ways, the way that they should. I wonder if the people might have thought that God, you know... <laughs> wouldn't have noticed such things or that it wasn't so important to give tithes and offerings to him. And why is it important, we might ask too, why is it important to give tithes and offerings to God? And why would he notice whether we do or not? As if he was constrained or something or dependent upon what you or I should do. Isn't he God Almighty who can do all things what does it really matter whether you or I give to him and towards what he is doing? To which we might first of all say that, that what these people were withholding from God and what you and I withhold from God too at times is actually his to begin with. Anything that we might have in our hands it's only there in our hands because he has entrusted it to us for a time. And to put a, a theological word around what's going on here, all things only come to us by the providence of God. The providence of God. And when we fail to give God what he reasonably asks of us, we fail to grasp that. We fail to grasp God's providence in our lives. Either we fail to acknowledge that it was his providence that has given us all that we have and all that we need, or we fail to trust 
that he will continue to provide all that we need. Or both. What we actually seem hardwired to do is actually the opposite of this. It's to try to shore up and, and bring in and, and put a fence around uh, our own peace and security and comfort and, uh, and belongings and things in life, as if that was a thing that we could do by ourselves. Which then leads us actually to, to harden our hearts towards God and hold back on him more and more. So to see it the other way, it's a simple way of honouring God and acknowledging that he has provided all that we have and need, that we should simply return some of his blessings to him. It declares him too to be, to be worthy of our trust in the future on all these things. While the ungodly person out there in the world uh, thanks whatever, the blind material universe or, or, or chance or, or some nature god maybe or, or, or themselves most likely for all their provision in life. No, no, the believer acknowledges that all things come from the Lord. Giving to God is a simple way of declaring that. In you, Lord, we have our life and breath and everything else. May this small portion, therefore, recognise and honour you. And so too we might also observe that God has chosen in his wise providence of us, he has chosen to oversee his people through his appointed ministry workers on earth, the Levitical system in the Old Testament age and the church in this New Testament age. And in simple, practical, boring terms, those servants of God are sustained by the giving of God's people. And they need resources to do the things that God puts in front of them to do for his purposes, which I think is what God's getting at in the, in the next part of his response here in verse 9. He says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. By house here, I suspect he means the temple at that time and therefore that he wants that his appointed ministers should be properly resourced by the people, resourced both for their own needs and, and for the work that they had to do. As it happens, though, uh, even the priests had been failing to honour God, uh, taking for themselves, it seems, and, and not honouring God in what they were called to do. Much of the rebuke in this book of Malachi actually was for them, the priests, and, you, and you'll read that later in the earlier sections of the book. God calls the priests back to their rightful role in giving him glory. In this part that we're looking at today, his focus falls on the rest of the nation on the same point, that people must stop withholding what he had always and reasonably asked of them so that he might lift the curse off their nation. Verse 10. And thereby, uh, by bringing the full tithe, uh, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. 
Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Here we get a window into another side of God's providence, that that he also restrains his blessings at times, such as when he would teach us more deeply of his providence, teach us more deeply of our ultimate dependence on him for all things. Teach us more deeply to thank him. Teach us more deeply to trust him. Teach us to properly honour him. Just as God is able to open the floodgates of heaven for us, so too he can leave them closed. And for a season it seems like that's what he had been doing. He'd been restraining his blessings so that his people would learn to return to him and give him the glory that he is due. That's what seems to be going on in Malachi 3.10 there. And in Malachi generally, the people had called into question God's goodness and they had then therefore neglected him and withheld from him until they were carrying on their lives in a, in a pretty ungodly state. And so God's been restraining his blessings from them so that they learn to glorify him as the one who provides all things. And this uh, towards their eternal good. The second way that God then explains that they need to return to him is in terms of what they've said about him, which comes in the last question in the book in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Again, defending their hard hearts and and rejecting the rebuke of God. Such is the way of pride in our hearts. You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This point actually is woven pretty closely into that last point about their giving. What their hands have withheld, that their mouths have withheld too. They're no longer glorifying God with what they say of him, but rather they're holding back. They're holding back the verbal thanks and praise that are due to his name. Even saying, he says, he even saying that it's better to be godless in this world. And so that too ties in to God's providence, if you read it through, because what do we gain, they ask, verse 14. What profit is there in following God? All things come from the hand of God. These people have fallen into some kind of transactional paganism. If we do this, then our God should do that. If our God doesn't do that, well, then why should we bother doing this? Especially when other people out there in the world, verse 15, who don't follow God are the ones who are prospering and blessed in this world. So so why shouldn't we just then live like them? It is futile, they say, verse 14. It is vain to serve God. 
And we might sometimes be tempted to ask the same kind of things today, mightn't we? Because for all the modern church seems to obsess over it, prosperity isn't actually a particularly Christian thing in our culture either, is it? So if all things do come from God, then why is it that the ungodly prosper? Those kind of thoughts are wrong. Those kind of thoughts come when our minds get bogged down into this earthly plane. But anything God should do for us in this life is only towards our eternal good. Even our lack today serves towards our good in the end by the wisdom of God's providence in our lives. He can restrain his blessings to teach us for our own good, if need be, such as to properly glorify him. For other reasons too, we should think, he can restrain for our good. If only we could lift our eyes up above this earthly plane, this mere earthly plane, we would see it clearly and we would give thanks and praise to God. Should we not receive the good and the bad? if it all serves towards God's glory in the end and to our eternal benefit under him? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, says Romans 8.28. Meanwhile, on the other hand, for those who hate God, all the blessings in the world, should he grant them to them, will only add to their condemnation in the end if they will not turn to God and honour him. How could they so reject God when they had received such blessing from his hand? Every blessing that falls on the ungodly who will not honour him will only further glorify God's justice against those people in the end. Which brings us to the thing God seems to be pursuing with his rebuke to the people in Malachi's day. He seems to be wanting not to, I don't know, smite them or something for their sin. No, he wants to turn these people back to him. As we said in verse 7, that's indeed what starts to unfold in the last part of the book. See uh, first in verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. We don't like it when it comes to us, but the rebuke of God in our lives is for a purpose, is to turn us back to him for our eternal good. His rebuke also along the way seems to clarify those who really do belong to God and and those who actually don't. Because not everyone in verse 16 returned to God, did they? No, a subset is drawn out there, isn't it? Those who feared the Lord spoke with each other and presumably those who didn't fear the Lord didn't. And that sets up a contrast in the rest of the book between those who fear the Lord and return to him and honour him 
and those who don't. For the one group, rather than judgment for their sin, God will hold out to them mercy to spare them the judgment they deserve. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, they shall be mine. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is Gospel 101 rolling through Malachi here. Everyone has sinned against God, like these people in Malachi's day. We've all done this, friends. We've all questioned God's goodness. We've all complained about his commands. We've all found ways to reject his rule in our life. We've all neglected him as we pursue other things that just seem so good in our eyes, in the eyes of the world, that are now overriding us. And for this, we deserve God's judgment. One and all, we deserve God's judgment, just like these people in Malachi's day. But in his great mercy, he simply asks that we return to him. Chapter 3 and verse 7. That we turn from our sin and start to honour him with our lives. Verse 16 says. And he will spare us what we deserve. Verse 17. It's Gospel 101. But for the other group, uh, the only alternative, uh, unfortunately... If we harden from this call, if we harden further in our sin and our rejection of God, then, then the only alternative is that we face uh, his righteous wrath against sin uh, as we break into chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That's where all of us should be, just to be clear about this. But those who turn to God and give him honour will be saved. Verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. There is beautiful gospel written into Malachi. And yes, we should think of it and unpack it in a, in a present kind of tense uh, because I'm reluctant to let God's rebuke through Malachi sit here and stay in its Old Testament context as just some historical words for, for those people back then. Because look at what God himself says in verse 6 at the start of our reading. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I reckon that's enough for us to be searching our hearts on these same questions. Uh, so first, why do we uh, also hold back from God in, in the material kind of sense that was first off the, off the list here, the material sense, why do we withhold uh, what he himself has given us? You and I know so much more than these people in Malachi's day, don't we? We can turn the page 
We know uh, when he speaks here through Malachi of the day when he'll make us his treasured possession, verse 17, we know from the New Testament on that next page how such a thing could actually come to be. It came to us with the coming of King Jesus. Jesus said that this John the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist was this Elijah figure of Malachi 4.5 and he therefore was this Lord and that he'd come to, to turn us back to God so that we shouldn't face the complete destruction that we actually should face. And then he gave us his life for that. It was by Jesus dying for our sin that God's mercy made us his. This too has come to us by God's gracious and loving providence for our lives in the eternal sense of all these things. It it, it is not what we deserved. But God so loved us that he gave us the Son, so that we should not perish but have eternal life in him. This gospel we know. So why then, even more so than than these people back in Malachi's day, why do we still hold back from God in, in, in what really is just simple earthly stuff in light of everything we now know and have received in Jesus? Why Why, why do we hold back? For the same reasons on the second count uh, that God uh, raised against these people, why do we sometimes grumble about God and and his providence, dishonour him in the things that we say? How can we actually look? We do this all the time. I don't know about you, but if you're anything like me, we do this all the time. How can we look at the godless world out there and actually draw comparisons? How on earth could it possibly be that we would see them as somehow better off or, or, or prosperous or happy or secure? Or any of those things, verse 14 and 15. How do we even think such a thing when we know what is ultimately coming for them? Unless, 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 despite all the prosperity in the world, they turn to God and find his mercy. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. How do we lose sight of that because of mere earthly stuff and circumstance? How do we so easily blur uh, uh, the actual distinction, verse 18, between us as God's people and those without God? Why do we always weigh life up in terms of things instead of grace? As I say, if you're anything like me, you do these things all the time. In light of the gospel that we've seen here in Malachi and seen all through these 12 minor prophets of old these recent weeks, And in light of the gospel in its full revelation, which we now have, of course, if you do turn that one page, How is it that you and I still 
sometimes fail to give God the glory he is due. So as we take uh, this scripture and close this series, maybe the gospel according to Malachi here can put a couple of hard challenges to us all. First of all, of course, if if you do not know yet the gospel of God, hear it here in Malachi. The day is coming when every evildoer, uh, everyone who does not fear God and give him honour, will be set on fire like hay. Malachi 4 verse 1. Hear that warning and heed that warning in Malachi today. Return to God. Listen to what he says. Return to God. Seek forgiveness in Jesus' name and, and be spared what you deserve on that day. Become instead, as he says, his treasured possession. And secondly, uh, for all of us then who have come to God and and repented and and humbly received that salvation, uh, let's spend here on out uh, letting him all the more so transform us. Transform us so that we more and more and more glorify him the way that we should in light of what he has done. Surely while we wait for that day of salvation uh, that's already ours, we should be seeking to do that. Think about how could our lives not be changed by hearing that sweet gospel to want to honour God now in everything we do, in every little way of how we live. That call that God gives us through Malachi, that, that call to give him glory, that's an ongoing call for the rest of our lives because of our ongoing battle with the world and the flesh and the devil. One way I reckon we can let this book search us properly, clarify us properly and refine us properly is to be asking actually the flip side of these questions that God puts to these people. Rather than asking, how am I robbing God? Which sounds self-righteous, doesn't it, and defensive. Maybe instead I can ask myself, well, how am I giving to God? How am I giving to God? Rather than, what have I said against God? Maybe I should ask, well, what have I said for God? How do I praise him? How do I glorify his good name with what I say? Let me put those challenges to you as we close this series. I'm going to take them on as well. Read Malachi. And let this scripture bring out godly questions in you so as to challenge you, to encourage you afresh, to be be positively and overwhelmingly for God as you push on in this life of faith. All you who fear the Lord, let's turn to God all the more and, and set our hearts all the more to giving him glory now and forever and in every little thing that we do. So I've been broken again this week by one of these minor prophets. Let me pray for us then as we set ourselves to these hard calls. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us as always and today this word that comes through Malachi.
Uh, Father, as we read this, uh, first we might pray, forgive us. Forgive us for the various ways we have doubted you, questioned you, dishonoured you. And Father, uh, restore us, return us to you, lift up our hearts and our minds, Father, to to the good things that we know above, the truths that are eternally ours in Jesus Christ. Fix our eyes and our hearts on those truths, Father. Thank you so much for making these things come to be for us, for coming into this world and for giving us your Son, that you intervened like that to to, to bring the forgiveness of our sin that we so need, that through his righteous sacrifice for us, help us to lock on to that truth and live it out as your people. Help us to live lives now and and forevermore that that give you the proper glory that is due your good name. You are our God. So teach us and strengthen us and, and cause us to live the way that your people should live under your good grace. In Jesus' name and for your true glory we pray these things and for our eternal benefit. Amen, amen, and amen.